there, everybody. This is the next in our series of Agatha Christie reread mini pods. And it's the last one before we gather as a group. It is The Secret of Chimneys. And I am your host, Bina007. The Secret of Chimneys was written by Agatha Christie and published in 1925. So just under 100 years old. It was her sixth book published and the last for Bodley Head. So if you remember, she'd signed up for an original book deal that was really not advantageous to her at all. She made very little money from her book sales and made most of it from the serializations. So in the meantime, she had hired an agent and got a new contract with Collins. And most of her books were published with Collins. And today, if you buy them, that's the name you'll see typically on the cover jacket. So The Secret of Chimneys is not an Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple mystery. Instead, it's kind of a melange of uh, closed house murder mystery and international spy thriller and even contains a little of that African adventure that we had in The Man in the Brown Suit. To be honest, it is a book that feels a little bit like she's writing to finish out a contract and just throwing everything at it to see what sticks and really playing around. I'm not sure it's a hugely successful novel. A lot of people rank it near the bottom of their rankings if they are to compare all the novels. But for me, it's still incredibly good fun because it still has a lot of that P.G. Woodhousean humour and subversion of British establishment types that I think is very fun in early Christie. And it also has something to tell us about society at the time. You know, this is 1925, we're coming out of World War One, um, but those interminable peace treaties that were signed, the dissolution of great empires, the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the rise of the nation state under Woodrow Wilsonian concepts of self-determination, all of this stuff was bubbling under the surface or on the surface actually of that time. Um, as well as all the social stuff, you know, women getting greater independence. Sadly, maybe a more, maybe a differently overt anti-Semitism as you read, as you reach the 1930s and then the rise of Hitler. So such a turbulent time that I think speaks to our own in certain ways. And yet this novel is also completely ludicrous. <laughs> And unless you're a completionist, I wouldn't necessarily recommend you seeking it out. I mean, I think it's really fun, but I think it's one to know about and know about themes that will echo later in Christie's oeuvre than necessary being one that you read um, for its own benefits. So this is what Gillian Gill, who I mentioned in a previous mini pod, wrote a very interesting book about Agatha Christie and her early work. This is what Gillian Gill has to say about the secret of chimneys. Chimneys, by the way, being a country house. Chimneys is a relaxation, a romp, a holding action, and a collage of some of Christie's favourite literary bits. Of all of Christie's adventure novels, The Secret of Chimneys is the craziest and the most amusing, a mixture of Ruritania and Blanding's Castle that shows the author's talent for light comedy as well as deft detection. And I think that's absolutely on the money. I think if you read it on its own terms, it is actually pretty funny. And it does speak to some of those P.G. Woodhouse Blanding's Castle novels. 
Um, because, you know, this is a world that is not the world that is really, truly familiar to Agatha Christie, the middle class milieu of country house murders. This is something set much more in the aristocracy and therefore she gets much more into spoof territory. And I think it's very clear that in uh, the Lord who owns this castle, she's definitely creating a comic version of the kind of aloof, bumbling, um, kind of ineffectual aristocrat. So what is the plot of this novel? There is no way to do this this succinctly because it's so absurd. We open in Bulawayo in South Africa. So this is um, still the kind of early start that we had in The Man in the Brown Suit and heavily influenced by the round-the-world trip that um, Agatha Christie and her then-husband had just taken. And our dashing hero, very much in The Man in the Brown Suit mould, they're pretty interchangeable, is a guy called Anthony Cade. And he has been asked by his good friend Jimmy McGrath to deliver some letters to London. And if he delivers them by a certain date to um, the publisher, he will get a thousand pounds or he'll get a cut of a thousand pounds, which sounds like an awful lot. It's about 60,000 pounds in today's terms. So not nothing, but also not like a million dollars. Like it's not like crazy money. And it shows that Anthony Cade really, he is a rogue. He's someone who has gone and gone to Southern Africa to sort of do sort of odd jobs. He's very mysterious and someone who evidently would like that money. So he turns up in London. He's traveling under the assumed name of Jimmy McGrath. Um, It's very convoluted, but he ends up meeting a society widow called Virginia Revel, who's very young and very beautiful and very charming. And she's being blackmailed by someone. Um, But it's not really her that's being blackmailed, but the person is using, the person whose letters are being used for blackmail has signed them with her name. And because she's just young and bored, she decides to pay the blackmailer. Oh, it's just hilarious. Anyway, that person ends up dead in her house in London. And she asks a passing tramp, believe it or not, probably not, who happens to be Anthony Cade in disguise to help her out. And it turns out, um, anyway, so he helps her dispose of a body, um, having never met her before. Now, <laughs> that's kind of silly. And that's not even really the start of the book. Um, it's worth saying that this this period reminds me, this is going to sound even more stupid, of the period um, when the movie, um, the first of the Rambo movies was set, when there were a lot of people demobbed from Vietnam floating about um, in the States. And there was a real problem of um, untreated mental health issues that turned into homelessness. And so I think she thinks he's an ex-demobbed soldier because um, there were a lot of them around. Um, so that may speak to why maybe, I don't know, I think it's kind of like a little interesting bit of social history tucked in to all that absurdity. Okay, so that's all the pre-plot. Um, at that point, Virginia Revel, who, whose husband um, used to be a diplomat before he died and who's incredibly well ca- uh, connected, is invited to Chimneys, the country house that's named in the title of this book, because there's going to be um, secret international diplomatic talks taking place there. And she, has, she is there to effectively be a pretty face and be quite charming. An underestimation, because actually... She's much smarter than all of that, as you would expect with Agatha Christie. 
what is going on is there is a country that Agatha Christie has made up, but I think we can assume it's sort of somewhere in the former Yugoslavia called Herzoslovakia. So we're meant to think it's a small nation that splintered off from the old Austro-Hungarian Empire. And it is a country which is incredibly politically unstable, very true to the time. And the royal family keep on having internal coups, and now it's a republic. There is a current pretender to the throne called Prince Michael, who is backed by the British. And if he is successfully funded in taking back control, he will grant the oil concessionary rights to the British as negotiated by a, um, a diplomat and a banker. Um, contrary to this, there's another candidate, the vanished Prince Nicholas, who no one can find. Um, people assume he might be dead or he might be in America who the Americans would want to back. And this is very true to the time. If you know something of your Middle Eastern history, you'll know that the British and the Americans were routinely in competition to put people, and the French indeed, all these colonial powers, to put people on the thrones of various, um, very new, very unstable nations and to change rulers that would be friendly and grant them concessions. And that kind of stuff still goes on in many parts of the world. So that I think is absolutely kind of spot on the money. However, (laughs) and that's still not the entire plot, it's still not the entire plot, there are some memoirs circulating um, that uh, Herzog-Slovakian prince had written that may prove embarrassing if they come to light in the middle of this negotiation. And they mention a famous jewel jewel theft that took place at Chimneys some years earlier, but that has been hushed up because the jewel that was stolen in question is the Koinur diamond, one of the world's largest and most famous diamonds. It now sits as part of the uh, the crown jewels. Um, so you can see they belong um, or are worn currently by Her Majesty, the Queen Elizabeth II, God save the Queen, um, and indeed are deeply contested. I think India does very much want, quote unquote, the Kohinoor diamond back, I think people would contest whether it's really Persian or, you know, if you want to play the origins game. Anyway, this is a real diamond. It's really part of the crown jewels. What is alleged is that a very famous um, jewel thief, identity unknown, stole the jewel, replaced it with a fake, but never got the jewel out and that it's hidden somewhere in the country house at Chimneys. So, so far we've got a dead blackmailer, a uh, young man traveling under false name disguised as tramp, saving dashing woman Virginia Revel, country house hiding stolen jewel, identity of jewel thief unknown, uh, oil concessions being negotiated in country house could be disrupted by blackmail. Um, is there anything else? Goodness knows. It, it's just absolutely nutty. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, to try and keep all of this straight, Agatha Christie does not use various points of view, as she had done in The Man in the Brown Suit, where you got a mix of letters from Sir Eustace and narration from Anne. In this novel, it's all told in an omniscient third-person voice. So anyway, what happens is, is, and you're literally like 100 pages into the book before the, the murder mystery itself begins, all these characters gather at the country house, the diplomats, the royalty... Virginia Revel, um, the people who run the house, who are like something out of P.G. Woodhouse, and a murder takes place. And so in comes Inspector Battle, which is really um, a police officer that's going to be used again and again by Christie in her books. 
um, to investigate who did it. And for reasons which I still can't quite imagine, he actually trusts Anthony Cade, who is the tramp that turns up mysteriously, to help him investigate it. Um, So you do get a murder mystery, you get international espionage, gangs, diamond thieves, all exposed, and indeed a treasure hunt. So what is not to like in this book? I think there's a lot that's really interesting in the book or about the book, because it tells you something of Agatha Christie's attitudes. And let's start with Anthony Cade, the hero. He looks just like Archibald Christie. He's said to be incredibly sexually attractive, just like the man in the brown suit. He is the guy that Virginia Revel trusts because he's really fit and brown and tanned. Her friend Bundle, Brent, so uh, the daughter of the Lord who owns the country house, also very clearly objectifies Anthony Caden says, you know, are you just silent and brooding or do you do other things too? I mean, he is a man that is lusted after and the women are very open and forward in their sexual desires and appetites, which is unusual for the time. Although Arch, uh, the character looks like Archibald Christie, Anthony Cade actually has more the character of Agatha Christie's brother, Monty. And Monty uh, Christie was, sorry, Monty uh, was not a success in life. He was rather dissolute. He went to a very posh public school called Harrow. Uh, public school here means a private school. Um, but he was sent down. In other words, he was expelled um, for naughtiness. He then joined the army and f- fought in the Boer War in South Africa, the pre-World War I war that Britain was engaged in, or one of many. Um, and he remained in Africa, a bit like Anthony Cade, a bit like the Martin in the brown suit. This is a place where people go who've kind of failed in conventional English life can try and make good. But he did not quite make good. Um, so here's a section or a quotation from the obituary of Monty written by his ex-army officer, Colonel Dwyer. Quote, he was one of the bravest chaps I have ever known. But one of those chaps who is eccentric, pig-headed, almost geniuses, but not quite. So they are usually failures. The best conversationalists in the world, but only when they feel like it. Um, So I feel that in this book, Christy is kind of doing two things. She's taking this charming, but slightly roguish brother and kind of redeeming him. She's creating a fantasy in which Anthony Cade slash Monty are given a chance to come home and prove their worth you know, prove their value, prove their honour and be useful and show that for men like that, men of adventure and men of action and physical courage, that there is a role they can play. And in in a way, if you read it that way, I think it's rather touching. I do feel it's also perhaps Agatha Christie capturing in Amber the high point of her marriage to Archie which we know is very quickly going to unravel. Um, You know, they're now living in Stockbroker Belt, as I I mentioned before, in Sunningdale. Um, She's kind of trapped in suburbia and he's going to the golf course and and having a whale of a time and having affairs. And I think in capturing the sexual attraction of Virginia Revel and Anthony Cade, Agatha Christie is capturing all that was best about her marriage. And in creating a guy who falls for Virginia, and it's head over heels in love with her. Um, she's capturing an idealised version, or maybe the version of the marriage that she had at the start, before before it all faded. So 
it is in in many ways a fantasy novel, not just um, the ludicrousness of the plot, but also a more touching fantasy in what she's trying to say about the two most important men in her life to date. Um, It also tells us a bit about how Agatha Christie thinks life should be lived and what she thinks is interesting. So she, much like Shakespeare, likes um, their heroes and their their kings to be young and to sow their wild oats and meet ordinary people um, before settling down to the real world. She sees nothing wrong with a roguish youth. And she also paints a picture of a lot of the young people here, including Bundle Brent and Anthony Cade, as being socialists when young. And I think this is something you can see, well, you'll continue to see it in her work in Death in the Nile. But it's something you see in a lot of literature at the time. And, and it's something that you just saw in real life. You know, very earnest young men going up to Oxford and other universities. And even if they came from very rich, inherited wealth, being exposed to socialist ideas and being very taken by them. And if you think about a very turbulent political time and what's going to happen in the late 20s and 1930s when it feels like established politics has little to address these problems. And so you see a competing rivalry between communism and fascism. Naturally, some of the idealistic young men were more attracted to the left. And you'll see that very much in the Spanish Civil War, where a lot of, you know, earnest, very, very rich young men in England will go off and fight and some of them will die on the side of the socialists. So that's really a little bit of interesting social history. And then you have, uh, so that's Anthony Cade. Then have Virginia Revel, the love interest, who is a young widow, maybe a bit of wish fulfillment from Agatha Christie, hoping to get a do-over incredibly charming, incredibly beautiful, but not at all at all obnoxious or arrogant with it, which is lovely. Um, when we meet her in the novel, she's rushing off to um, a clothes store to buy Spanx, effectively, to buy slimwear, shapewear, like her skims by the Kardashians. I find this hilarious. Shows that some things never change for women, eh? Um, to me, Virginia Revel is very much like Anne and Tuppence in about five to ten years. And I think there is still something very compelling for Agatha Christie and for us as the reader about these very funny, very quick-witted, underestimated, but courageous uh, modern young women, or in Virginia's case, slightly older women. And that she likes her women to be women of action, women who are independent, women who, while they might be pretty and they might be good at playing the role society has carved out for them, in this case, a diplomat's wife, women who nonetheless have far more to them than that. So I think she's really fascinating. And then you have a set of characters who I feel are straight out of P.G. Woodhouse. So Lord Caterham, who owns the country house, who has this servant called Treadwell, and it's so Jews and Worcester. Caterham's basically just a pampered child who throws tantrums. You know, he's faced with this entire uh, very lavish breakfast buffet, as you might expect in Downton Abbey, if you've seen that. And then sort of moans that, oh, can the cook just poach me two eggs? Um, But as soon as that simple breakfast comes, he's already devoured the buffet because he's, you know, I mean, the whole thing is just hilarious. Um, And then you get Bill Eversley, who is one of the diplomats or assistant diplomats who's at the house. And he really is the classic PG Woodhouse public school ass, um, you know, Always, always watch out and worry because Agatha Christie never likes members of parliament, reverends and stupid civil servants. This is this is what she says of him in the novel. Bill Eversley was an extremely nice lad. He was a good cricketer and a scratch golfer. 
He had pleasant manners and an amiable disposition, but his position in the Foreign Office had been gained not by brains, but by good connections. So again, a great example of Agatha Christie just getting to the heart of all the social nonsense that was going on and the who-you-know-not-what-you-know culture of the upper classes. Agatha Christie also has a great deal of fun with us in this book. Um, You get the feeling she really doesn't care because she's at the end of her contract. So a murder mystery set in a beautiful ancient country house, um, very famous manor house. You might expect her to describe it to us, but this is what she says in the novel. The car passed through the park gates of chimneys. Descriptions of that historic place can be found in any guidebook. It is also number three in Historic Homes of England, price 21 shillings. On Thursdays, coaches come from Middlingham and, and from Middlingham and view those portions of it which are open to the public. In view of all these facilities, to, to describe chimneys would be superfluous, end quote. So I love this. I love this idea of creating like a meta universe in which chimneys really exist. And should the reader so want, they can just go and look it up in a guidebook or go visit it on a, on a coach tour. So... I thought that was really hilarious. So as you can see, I'm probably, you know, slightly more tolerant of this crazy book than than many. As with all of Christie, there's always the dark to the light. So as much as it's really funny and kind of crazy and comments on a lot that was going on at that time, it also contains some of the prejudices of that time. Um, Agatha Christie is in some ways quite conservative with a small c. So socialism for her is clearly a phase that young aristocrats go through. It's not a serious and sort of well thought out position, but something that you just test out in your radical youth before um, reforming. In that sense, she's very much of the sort of Henry IV parts one and two, Shakespeare. Um, We also get a character, unsurprisingly now, if you listen to these pods, Herman Isaacstein, um, who is a financier. And again, this is just Agatha Christie making that really lazy, classically 1920s, uh, maybe, I really hope so, not still today, 2020s, assumption that if someone is super rich, um, they're probably Jewish because Jews really know how to make money. Um, And also the otherness of Jewish people, the fact that they don't quite fit in, they are different, they're not quite trustworthy, they're not quite English. Um, So this is a straightforward quote from the book, quote, Hebraic people, yellow-faced financiers in city offices, end quote. Um, Pejoratives used to describe Isaac Stein are, quote, unquote, Nosy Stein, Mr. Ike Hermanstein. And you can can argue and debate whether she's commenting on the prevailing anti-Semitism of the time or participating in it. Sadly, I think it probably is the latter. Um, Here's another description of Isaac Stein, quote, he was dressed in very correct English shooting clothes, which nevertheless sat strangely upon him. He had a fat yellow face and black eyes as impenetrable as those of a cobra. There was a generous curve to the big nose and power in the square lines of the vast jaw, end quote. So just really unpleasant facial caricature comparing to a snake. Um, this is not pleasant. And unfortunately, for those of you who persist with a reread, you're going to see this continue until the early 1930s. Um, and it's really interesting because the world kind of took a fork choice, didn't they, in the 1930s? And some people um, doubled down on the anti-Semitism under the influence of populists such as, as Hitler and the propaganda that came from them. 
And some people were revolted by the logical extension of their views and reconsidered. Um, And I think Agatha Christie, to her credit, was in the latter, which is not to excuse her writing and attitudes in the 1920s, but I think it is at least something. Anyway, we'll get we'll get to what happened in 1930s. There's a very pivotal meeting that made her re-examine her hitherto lazily unthinking anti-Semitism. Um, but it is there in the book. She's also in this book quite anti-foreigner. Um, again, you can argue whether it's a comment on attitudes at the time or what she really thinks. For instance, quote, the maid, she's French. I thought she might go into hysterics, end quote. Um Foreign languages in Agatha Christie are always quote-unquote guttural, whether Afrikaans in The Man in the Brown Suit or Herzegovakian here. Like, she always finds foreign languages inelegant and animalistic and kind of things that you can mock. For instance, there's a character with an unpronounceable, um, heavy consonanted name in this book, which Anthony Cade calls Count Lollipop, and we're meant to think that's hilarious. Um, it's, It's just really, really horrific. There's also towards the end uh, when, you know, people are talking about the future of Anthony Cade, when someone thinks, oh, God, what if he married a black woman in Africa? As if that would be the worst thing ever in the history of man to marry an African woman. So very distinct racial politics um, going on here. For all that, and maybe even because of that, I do think it's important to keep reading these books and read them in their original and to see where lazy racial prejudice can lead us as societies and that Things like what happened in the 1930s don't spring out of nowhere and perfectly reasonable, smart, intelligent, lovely and, you know, people that we admire um, can also express views that are unpalatable to modern readers um, and should themselves, if they have a long enough career, question them and we can react to that. So, yeah, um, unpleasant stuff going on in this novel under the surface. What became of this book? Like I said, this is not one of the most beloved books that she wrote. Um, probably justifiably, although I do feel it's a bit hard done by. Um, Christie herself adapted it into a play in 1931. Um, And it's worth saying that when the book was published, actually contemporary readers really loved it. It's only modern readers seeing it in the context of her oeuvre who who tend not to like it. The play was uh, never performed for various reasons and was actually lost until 2003. And I think it has since been staged and performed It is interesting to note, because we'll go on to talk about a lot of adaptations, what we like and don't like in the changes made to the original text, that Christie changed a lot in her adaptation of her own book. She even changed the villain and she dropped all the African stuff at the start. So, I mean, like wholesale adaptive changes. So I guess we should forgive all the other people who mess with her work, too. Um, If you want to see this book, in common with the other adventure stories, there aren't many versions of it that circulate. And in fact, there is only one. In in Britain in 2010, ITV uh, created an episode of their Miss Marple series based on this novel. So the eagle-eyed and eagle-eared amongst you will remember that Miss Marple is not in this book but they decided they needed more story to fit into their Marple series. This is the one starring Julia McKenzie as Miss Marple. Um, So they adapted it, and it is called The Secret of Chimneys, but it really bears zero resemblance to the book. It's a totally different uh, country, and it's not Herzegovina. It's a totally different motive, and it's a totally different murderer. 
It's also very different in tone. So everything that redeems this book, which is its humour and its fast pace and its amazingly charismatic, um, you know, central um, protagonists in Virginia Revel and Antigone Cade, it's all lost. And the resulting TV film is just really dour and really silly, but never charming and just dark and dingy and boring. And I, I definitely... Insofar as you're going to do one or the other, I would definitely say with this one, read the book, don't watch the adaptation. Um, I also feel, and I'm going to do this after the end credits. Yeah, I'll do this after the end credits, after the over and out. If you do read this and you want to hear a final thought on the plot machinations, then listen on to the end. If you don't want to be spoiled, then tune in next time for the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Um, I really hope if you do read this book that you enjoy it. I certainly really really loved my reread of it um but i know that for many this will be one that they miss in the meantime i hope you really enjoy whatever it is that you're reading this weekend and uh, feel free to join us next time on the murder of roger Ackroyd, when we'll finally get a proper vassals of king's grade episode as you know and love them with lots of people chipping in with all sorts of different ideas anyway over and out <laughs>